Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. This morning we are in Parshat Breshit. We are beginning our Torah reading cycle. So given that we are beginning our Torah reading cycle, I would like us to do that with some intentionality. And so I would like you to find in your Bible, I'm not going to tell you a page number, find the last verse of the book of Deuteronomy, because we're not simply beginning a Parsha today, and we're not simply beginning the Torah, like we're in the Parsha that it's at the beginning of the Torah. Mm -hmm. We are beginning a new year, a new cycle of Torah reading. We are in the third, third of every Parsha. We are in the third triennial. So if you go to hebcal.com to find what you're supposed to be looking at for whatever Friday morning we're studying, you'll be looking at year three of the triennial cycle. Because we are beginning a new cycle, however, we're going to do it a little differently this morning. Would someone please read the very last line of Deuteronomy in English? Never again. Did there arise in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom Yudhavavhe singled out face to face for the various signs and portents that Yudhavavhe sent to him to display in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his courtiers and his whole country, and for all the great, mighty, and awesome power that Moses displayed before all Israel? All right. So, what are the last two words in Hebrew, Mickey? Israel. Go back a little bit before that. The last words a little bit before that. Lifne is there? Lifne? Yeah. Or Lifne Kol Yisrael. How far back? Kol Yisrael. Yes. The last, the last three words in Hebrew of the Torah text. Leene Kol Yisrael. What does that mean literally? To the eyes of all Israel, Yisrael. Now let's read the, those words. But if you're reading this as a circle, as a cycle, if we read those last words, now let's read the first words of Genesis connected to those words. Kol Yisrael, Bereshit bara Elohim so Rabbi Jonathan Klein says this is absolutely to be connected, is one rabbinic reading. Le'enei kol Yisrael, in the eyes of every person of Israel, b'reshit bara Elohim. Are we to understand this beginningness and God creating the heavens and the earth, meaning each of us has our own way of seeing Breshit bara Elohim and forward. Each person has their own understanding of these stories, of these texts, of what it means, of what it means this year, because every single human being is a different filter, is a different lens through which the Torah text is refracted. That we shouldn't read, God forbid, Deuteronomy's last words is somehow separate from the beginning of Breshit's. Each of us is a unique revelation. 
We each encounter the text, the same text. It is a different revelation of God, the way each of us understands that text. The Sfatimet goes so far as to say, that is why Torah was revealed to everyone at Sinai, because had one person been missing, had that one lens, that one understanding of Torah been missing, it would not have been complete revelation. And that is why it says, all of you who are not here this day, it's given to all of you, meaning revelation is not complete. As each one of us confronts this text anew and interprets it in light of our own lives and experiences this year, revelation continues. God continues to speak. God continues to call from Sinai and continues to give out revelation. And as long as we are gathered, as long as we come together and study and engage, revelation continues. So let us not uh, believe that we are going back to a text that we've read so many times. We know this. Especially, right, the, the longer you've been doing this, right, Reuben, Blanche, Sarah, the longer you've been doing this, you're like, again, with this story, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> I keep hoping it's going to come out different. <laughs> <laughs> so our, our tradition invites us to understand this as a brand new, a brand new encounter with these texts because we're new. We're different than we were when we studied this last year. We've had a whole year of nightmares and dreams and adventures and worries and concerns and successes and failures and fears. And all of that is going to inform our reading. And all of that means revelation is getting ready to happen again. How exciting is that? Because we're in the third third of our reading, we're not starting at Breshi Elohim. And we're not reading Cain and Hevel necessarily, Cain and Abel. If you look at where we're supposed to begin with the triennial reading, Bert told you where that was, or Pam did, one of them. What, where did they tell you that was supposed to start? 5-1. Five, 5-1. One. Five, one. And what... What does 5-1 start with? Somebody read the first few sentences of 5-1. This is the record of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Page 22. And when they were created, he blessed them and called them man. I'm sure the other translation is very different. Exactly. This is the traditional translation. When Adam had lived 130 years, he begot a son in his likeness after his image. And he named him Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived 800 years and begot sons and daughters. All the days that Adam lived came to 930 years, then he died. Okay, so this is where we're supposed to start. And it goes from here all the way through chapter 5 to the end of our Parsha with the line of Adam until we get to the birth of whom? Noah. Noah. Noah is going to be the hero of the next story. So we get the genealogy to absolutely firmly connect Noah to Abraham. 
Adam. To God. It's the whole point of chapter 5. The whole point of chapter 5 is to connect Noah very clearly to Adam. All right, Tikva, read the first few words of chapter 5 in Hebrew, please. Okay. Excellent. So, Tikva, what uh, we're in chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of Genesis. So, Tikva, what does translate literally? What does it say? Translate from the Hebrew literally what you just read. What does that mean? Sefer? Aha. So. Yeah, of Adam. Adam. Exactly. Adam, Earth. Adam, the creature of Earth. We tend to refer to that in uh, at RRC with uh, at least my teacher, the late uh, Tikva Freimerkensky of blessed memory, the Earthling. Right? Ha-Adam. The definite article is the Earthling. I know here it's Adam because later Adam gets a name because we need one Earthling as opposed to the other Earthling. Right? So then it's a proper name, Adam, Earth. So Earthling gets created. This is the book of the generations of the earthling that got created. Masculine and feminine. Did he create them? Right? In the image of God. All right, so... We have two different creation narratives. You know this. You've been learning with me long enough to know there are two different creation stories in Genesis, right? First, there's the earthling who's Zahar and and then they're separated into male and female. The next one, you've got Adam, and then Chava gets created. So two different, two different creation narratives. This book, this Sefer, Toldot Adam, this kind of moving on from that story and moving into the next part of Torah that's coming, recaps it as Zachar unekeva ba'am. Masculine and feminine, he created them. So going, it seems to go back to this idea that they were created, Zachar unekeva. They were created male and female, right? Rather than Adam was created and then there was Chava. Right? This goes back to a synthesis. The masculine and feminine were they created. So Adam, do you get what I'm saying? Adam is called Baram. Adam is called plural here. It doesn't say Adam and Eve. It says Adam. Masculine and feminine were they created. Almost a plural earthling. Two beings in one. So this is the beginning of the Sefer Toldot Adam. Because it uses the word Sefer in this old text, we are pretty certain this refers to its own scroll. This was its own 
um, little book, right? It doesn't just say these are the generations of Adam. Sefer Todot Adam seems to suggest even this early that it was a separate piece. Now remember, whenever we're talking about Torah, we're talking about an editor with lots of documents in front of him or her. This is a collection. What you're holding in your hand when you hold the Torah, it should say edited by the final redactor, right? This is an, this is an addition of lots of different texts that eventually gets canonized. Things come in, things go out, things come in, things go out, until it's set that this edition doesn't get touched, right? So there's lots of documents in front of the author. One of them seems to be Sefer Toldot Adam, right? The, a book, a little pamphlet of the generations of Adam. All right. so, so we're going to look at the arc of Bereshit that leads us into chapter 5. The arc of Bereshit, as we have it, is the cosmos. Something goes on with the cosmos that results in this world. It isn't exactly yesh me'ayin, something from nothing, because in Genesis we're told, the ruach Elohim merachefet al The whole business begins with the ruach Elohim, the spirit, the wind, however you want to translate ruach, of God hovering over the face of the deep. The face of the deep. There's deep already. Hovering on the face of the waters. There's water already. This is obviously, says Rashi, not the beginning of the creation of anything. That is not what this is. There's already Mayim. And there's already, what else is there already? Choshech. There's already Choshech, darkness. Because then we have Vayi Or, let there be light and God separates between the light and the dark. There's already darkness and there's already Mayim. So as early as our earlier commentators, Rashi, the year 1000 or so says, well obviously this is not an explanation for how everything got here. It is obviously something else. And that is absolutely true. This Bereshit was never meant to be a scientific explanation in their science of how the universe came to be. That is not what Genesis is. Genesis is laying the stage with curtains and lights and velvet seating and a lovely tipped stage so you can see the back, the orchestra pit. Because until you have all of that, you can't have the show. Where does the show really start? Any guesses? Most people think if you say, what's the first thing God created, most people would say light. But based on what you just said, it's really not true. There was darkness and, of course, the, the deep. Yeah, but so, so I just think it's interesting that we just go right away to light, but that's what makes it so spectacular was that there, the Choshech was there first. Yes. But if this is the story of the Jewish people, then the beginning of the story would be Abraham. Thank you. This is the this is the this is the stuff you read before the play starts that says 
To the left of the stage, there is a small table. On the right, right, is a sofa and a divan and two chairs. Sitting in one of the chairs is a poodle. Right, so this is... Sometimes I just shouldn't wait till I get here to make up my metaphors. So, so you're, you're, we're reading the stage instructions for, for how it's to be set. Then you have an introduction. And the introduction is the next couple of chapters of Genesis. And then the story begins, Lech Lecha. The story begins with Avraham. Avraham and Sarah begin our story. This is all backdrop. We get so hung up when we talk about the Bible, when we talk about Genesis, so hung up on right this whole business about how was it actually created because that really had, it, it was never meant to be literal. Never. It was a way to set the stage for Lech Lecha. So when we get the creation of human beings, we get the human being created with free will, the ability to choose, we're told, between... Good and evil. <laughs> Very interesting that that's where you went. We got the human being created with the ability to choose between good and evil. Does the human being know that there is such a thing as good and evil? No. So the human being is created with the capacity, let's just leave it at, to choose. Because they don't, they don't get designed with the capacity to choose between good and evil. That comes later. They're, they're made by God with the capacity to choose. And if we're really going to talk about to choose what? It's to choose to follow the divine instruction or not. There is no good and evil for Adam and Chava. What a, they haven't eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil yet. They're not choosing evil when they disobey God. They're just choosing to disobey God. Right? They don't know that's evil. There isn't such a thing. There isn't such a concept until they eat. So in this way, they're innocent of any bad. Because there isn't bad. They're innocent of doing anything wrong. There is no wrong in their world. They don't know anything about that. What we do know is that they were created with the capacity to disobey the creator. The big question gets asked by the tradition and by the rabbis, why would God, in God's infinite wisdom, create a child, let's say, God, why would God have a child knowing if you give the child the capacity to choose, it's going to disobey you? What, God doesn't know that Adam and Chava are going to do this, God forbid? Chas v'shalom, chas v'chalila. Of course God knows what the, God is omnipotent and omnipresent and omniscient. Of course God knows what they're going to choose. So why go there? This remains one of the big questions. Why create human beings with the capacity to defy the parents, Sarah? So they can learn what happens and what to avoid and what to do. But if you design them without the capacity to choose to disobey, they don't have to learn anything. But it was written by But parents. then they would be. <laughs> Laura Diamond's been hanging around here too long. She says, because it was written by whom? Parents. Parents. 
that it has to be this way because it's written by parents who are like, if only they did not have the capacity to choose to disobey me, their lives would be so much better. It would be so much better for them, for me, for the family, for everybody, for the planet, right? So it's written, A, by parents. B, Genesis is not coming to fantasize about a different universe. This is coming to talk about and deal with and dig into and try to make some sense out of what is. And what is, is this crazy being called human that has a deep connection to the planet, is of the planet like all the other creatures, and has this other wacky thing happening called consciousness. And that that being can choose to obey or disobey. Richard? If, if, uh, if we go back to Wednesday's mysticism class, <laughs> when you were talking about the breaking of the spheres, Sparks. Okay, so you refer to it as a cosmic, a big cosmic accident. Right? And so with this big cosmic accident, perhaps God needs a partner to help put the pieces back together. And it's not as simple as creating a mindless automaton that says, here, go sweep up over there, go sweep over there, go sweep up over there. You have to create a being. <clears throat> Who's going to ultimately be capable of recognizing where the shards are? So nice work of Luriana Kabbalah Breshit might look like. <laughs> God poured God's self back into the universe from which God had lovingly withdrawn during Simsum. God pours God's self back in. Oops, that didn't go so well. Right. Now I need a being. So I would love for you to write Breshit according to Lorianna Kabbalah. Beautiful. That now that we've had this cosmic accident, I need human beings. And it can't be an automaton. Right? Because part of the way that things get put together is that being's intention, that being's willingness to choose. And this is what Rabbi Kushner says. That why? This question we just asked, why would God do such a crazy thing creating the ability to choose when God knows it? God knows not just this. God knows what's coming in a few chapters. What's coming in a few chapters? Not just Adam and Eve, huh? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. What else is coming? The flood. All right. It's going to all go bad. It's going to get so bad that God is going to take the whole thing and go and start again. Why? Why do you assume that God is omniscient? Because that's the assumption of the folks who wrote this. But how do you know that? Where does it say that God is omniscient? They're pretty clear about it. Because I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't necessarily believe that myself. I just want. We're to not know. talking about what we believe. We're, we're right now. Sometimes we go there. We're starting with the story itself in the setting of the people who wrote it, trying to get at you know some of the premises, and then of course we're going to go to what that means for us. Okay, so I, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about what I believe. I'm talking about what the folks who wrote this were doing so that we can appreciate the myth in its own setting. And then we'll move on. So, so if God knows that this whole business is going to go awry and is still going to keep a remnant of this Adam thing around called Noah and Noah's family, 
right? It's still going to spring from there. We're going to talk about why that's important. But, but one of Kushner's most beautiful teachings to me is, so why not ball up the whole thing, including humanity, and start over with something that doesn't have free choice, given that it's going to go so badly? And Rabbi Kushner says, because without the capacity to choose, now that they have eaten of the tree, now they have the capacity, Reuben, to choose between good and evil. And without that, there is no possibility for righteousness. Without that possibility of choice, you know, between good and evil, now that they know what that is, now that we know what that is, there is absolutely no possibility of goodness. And that God wanted goodness more than God wanted perfection. Perfection would have been, don't give them choice and let them hang out in the garden and it's all perfect. And God is not interested, says Rabbi Kushner, in perfection. What God is interested in is goodness. And that can only come through choice. So we get the creation of humanity that has this capacity to choose. They choose terribly in their infancy and in their early, early adolescence. <laughs> their frontal lobes are not fully developed and they are not fully online. And so they make, they make poor choices. And, and I don't, and because they made poor choices, the entire thing was destroyed. <laughs> the entire planet was destroyed. So in all seriousness, right, let us take that lesson to heart, right? That because they made such poor choices, the entire enterprise was destroyed. In our story, it's about God doing that. In our time, of course, it will be us. It will be we who destroy the entire business if we don't start making some different choices out of different places and out of different motives. But isn't the story here actually that we, they, caused that because of how people were acting? Exactly! The interesting thing to me is God kind of saying that God made a mistake. <laughs> that it, it's it taking... It's, well, I, 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 let's be very clear in our language. Mistake. It does not say God made a mistake. The text is very clear. And God regretted, okay, regretted that God made humanity. So the teaching for me is when we stay in regret, what happens? Bad stuff. <laughs> Bad stuff. When the divine is brooding and is staying in this place of, I regret this, and doesn't move, what happens? The whole destruction. Regret is only helpful if you're going to move out of that. The metaphor of the parent is so perfect. The metaphor of the parent is extraordinarily perfect, as this is, as Laura pointed out, written by parents. And, and actually, the Midrash goes there and says, you know, that... One rabbi says to the other, why would you have a son? You know that son is going to defy you. Why would you do this? Right? And the other rabbi answers, because, of course, blah, 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 blah. And this is the, this is exactly the question. Why create, why do we have children? 
And we call in prayer, even though we may have trouble with it right now, we call God Avinu, our Father. And, and that imagery is deep in Jewish prayer. Very deep. All right, so we... We are at this chapter, all of this members, we're just, we're not even at chapter five yet, right? Which is where we're supposed to start today, right? All right, so this whole business of setting the stage, setting the stage for Noah, part of it is that we have to get to the flood story because in the ancient Near East, that was understood to be how things were. There's a flood story in every ancient Near Eastern tradition. Everyone. My kid is learning in sixth grade at Paul Revere. She's learning about Mesopotamia. And I was just like, Amy, don't talk. Amy, don't talk. Amy, don't talk. Right? But then I couldn't stand it. So I was like, you know. <laughs> and she, she's learning about, right, all, you know, about the code of Hammurabi. And I'm like, you know. <laughs> so, um, and she's learning about Gilgamesh, right? She's learning the ancient Near Eastern mythology and it's like that is the origin of the flood narrative everyone in the ancient world everyone in mesopotamia knew the flood story depending on where you lived was what your version of the flood story was and what you called the hero of that story and what you called the gods involved in that story but you had but the the flood had happened right it was mythologically true and so we have to get to the flood narrative you have to And there's a radical Israelite take on the flood story, which we're not doing today. (laughs) And the ancient Israelite take on that story that is uh, centered around this family, Noah, one of the most important reasons for this Sefer Todot Adam is to connect Adam and Chava directly to Noah. Why is that important? Correct. Why is that important? He's the second Adam. Okay, but we could just have a new Adam. Why not just have a new Adam? If he's the second Adam, fine. Make a new Adam. Nathan? Not all of Adam's descendants were? Ah. Ah. Not all of Adam's descendants were evil. This is one of the ways the question, why bother creating them with free will? Why bother? Because they're not all evil, it turns out. There will be tzaddikim. There will be righteous people. And that seems to be worth the cosmic gamble. Now, God stacks the deck here and gets rid of everybody who wasn't. <laughs> all right? <laughs> but the answer of why bother... Ultimately, as to what Nathan said, the rabbis go where Nathan just went. Because you can't have tzaddikim, you can't have righteous people without giving everyone the capacity to choose even the ones that aren't righteous. And you never know. A rotten apple, right, might come back around. There's always a possibility of what? Teshuvah. There's always the capacity. Oh, didn't we just hear something about this? 
It's not an accident. We're coming out of the Yamim Nora'im. We are coming out of Yom Kippur. And then the celebration of Sukkot to begin the story of talking about how everybody got it wrong. We just came out of the understanding that we all get it wrong. And there's a capacity to change. There's the capacity to do it differently. And practices in place to help support that possibility and bring that possibility to fruition. This is what the rabbis trusted. Didn't the rabbis also say, I think there was 10 things that were made before creation, one of which was Teshuvah. That it's built into the fabric mm-hmm. right. of the, the nature universe. of the universe. How wonderful that our sacred mythology reads that as preceding anything. That it's all right, that it's built into the fabric of existence itself, the possibility of change, the possibility of tshuva, which can only come from doing something wrong. And can only come from choice. Choice, right? Choosing, fixing. We choose to do tshuva. We choose to do it differently. We choose, right? So that that is what God is interested in, according to Kushner, is our choice to do that rather than just <clears throat> there's no possibility to do anything else. Were there other people other than descendants of Adam? So let's... Or is that a different, completely different... So, so who, did, who did they marry? I usually don't answer things this way, but I'm going to say it doesn't matter. Why? Because they're all going to get destroyed. Right, so... Start again. I thought there was a second reason to uh, trace... Abraham yes, they, of back, course. Back, or second and what before. do you think that might be? Well, uh, back basically to creation of the earth by God. I mean, God... So God created the earth, so it's his, to do what sort of what he wants. And he created earthlings, starting with Adam, tracing up directly to Abraham. And so, well, you know, when, when, when we became the Jewish people, the God that we're talking about is the one that created us and the earth. And when it, if he gives us Israel as our domain, it's his right to do so. I mean, I, I thought that was all sort of part of the way. Aha! Uh-huh. So Robert is going to, if the whole point of the story, which we just said, we just said all this is an introduction to, the, to Act 1, and Act 1 is Lech Lecha. If part of Lech Lecha is a promise, I'm going to give you this land to you and your descendants, and then it ends with the descendants presumably getting ready to go in and occupy it, yes, on whose authority? The big one. The big one. So we got to make sure it's the big boss that makes that promise and then fulfills that promise because otherwise we don't have absolute guarantee that we have rights to be in that place. Okay. So 100% we got to make sure this is the God, the only God, and the one that created the whole business that gives us this promise. Why not start with a second Adam then? who was made by the big guy. All right, so to Noah, Noah traces all the way back to Adam, A to Nathan's point. It's not all bad. There's still within this population of pretty bad people, right? There's Noah, who is, according to the rabbis, a tzaddik in his generation. Right? Compared, and the rabbis say, what does that mean? In his generation, why doesn't it just say he was a tzaddik? In his generation means given who he was hanging out with. Right? Given the influences in his life, 
he turned out pretty okay. He was a relative tzaddik. Doesn't that also mean that we need to be judged against what humans are capable of? And again, not perfection. He was righteous compared to what men can be. Right. It, it doesn't actually. I'm going back to your other point before that, that we don't have to be perfect. So what? Well, it would be nice if we would choose to be boring. perfect, be <laughs> right? It'd be boring, um, right? The, you know, those that series of books left behind, right? Leave me behind, right? Because how boring is that going to be? Like whatever party they make. Um, so the the relative to what he saw, I would say, and experienced. So when you think about people who have been through serious trauma, who've been raised in a situation of deprivation or abuse, and you see their capacity to get past that. You don't hold them to the standards of somebody necessarily who, and I'm not saying they can't reach that place, but, but we always tend to see that person as, wow, it's amazing they're standing. <laughs> you know, given what they've been through, it is amazing we wouldn't say that necessarily about the child who was raised in the Palisades with, you know, every luxury and every expectation of going to Harvard. You know, like it, we, we measure a little bit differently. So that's, it's a recognition in a good way, I think. The rabbis use it as a criticism that Noah wasn't so great, right? And what is one of the things they point to in comparison to Abraham about why he's not so great? How do we know that? He gets told the entire planet's going to be destroyed. Abraham gets told oh, Sodom Abraham. and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. Abraham argued. Ah. Abraham said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to destroy everybody in those cities? Then that's going to mean innocent people are going to die. You can't do that, says Abraham to the big boss that created the universe. What does Noah say? Okay. Where's the yard? A boat? How big a boat? How am I supposed to build a boat? Right. What's a cubit? What's a cubit? Right. So, so this, so for the rabbis, this is a criticism. He's a tzaddik. Okay. Well, let's not use that word so like you know happily of him in his time amongst the people he's with. He's a tzaddik, but they criticize him for not arguing with God. Who but the Jewish people has its biggest criticism of one of its heroes be, he was okay, but he did not argue with God. Right? <laughs> this it's not just arguing, it was calling God to test. Calling and, God and, out and saying, you're wrong. You're just, yeah. You can't do this. Because yeah, you're a just God. Right? So when I was speaking with someone recently who was like upset with the Torah portion they got, and they came in to meet with me because the family's very concerned, and it's the, ch it's the chapter in Torah where Dina gets raped, and oh my God, and like, how do we do this? And, and then I look at the Parsha, and I'm like, this is, this is the Parsha where Jacob wrestles with the angel and is named Yisrael. And they look at me like, like that saves it for us. <laughs> so I started talking a little and I say something about do you understand that we call ourselves B'nai Yisrael? We call we don't call ourselves B'nai Avraham, B'nai Yaakov, B'nai Yitzchak. We call ourselves B'nai Yisrael. We call ourselves the descendants of the one who wrestles, wrestles God. God. That's how we identify the people who argue with God. What a crazy name to call yourself. 
We could have chosen a lot of things. But that, right, that's a core value, is, is arguing against even an edict from on high. All right, so the reason Noah has to be connected back to Adam. I was going to uh, give you a handout, but there's way more of you than I made handouts for. It's a blessing. It's a machaya. It's a wonderful thing. Um, so I will summarize instead to say that some in the Midrash and in the Talmud, the rabbis argue, and one asks the other, what is the most important thing we learn from this whole entire business of Torah? And the one rabbi answers, love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule. And the other rabbi answers, it is that Noah descended from Adam. And the other rabbi says, how can that be the most important precept of the Torah? Because loving your neighbor as yourself means you have to kind of take a jump, right? I'm going to choose to see you, right, as somebody who's as worthy of love and righteous treatment as me. So it's a kind of pretend, isn't it? Not a bad one, but it's a kind of pretend. I'm going to pretend you're as important as I am. And that's fine. That's good. Because if I, if I pretend that, I'm going to behave in righteous ways to you, right? So the other rabbi's arguing, that's already not true. That's already not what you can base it on. Noah descended from Adam, which means they actually are you. Why? How does that follow? How is that a consequence of Noah descending from Adam? Everyone. <coughs> Everyone is kin. It's not pretending. They are you. We all descend from the same place. The same people. Adam and Chava. Chava gives birth to... What, who do we just read, Tikva? Chava gives birth to whom? Uh-oh. <laughs> Set. That's the important one, set. Because that's where Noah will descend from. If Chava gave birth to set from hanging out with Adam, then that means every single human being derives from the same people. That doesn't doesn't go to your your original question. Because your original question was, why couldn't he have started over with a second Adam? Mm-hmm. If there were a second Adam, we'd still be all mm-hmm. True. That's true. All right. <laughs> so. But not from the initial creation. So, I mean, I think that, that's more of it, is that it, from it's initial, that it's this Adam, this one that made the choice, this one that made the mistake, this one that did all of that, connects directly to Noah, which connects directly to all of us. We are, and you all heard my story at Rosh Hashanah about finding my birth family. It was theoretical before, right? I was connected to everybody because I wasn't connected in certain ways to anybody. So that was a weird thing that now there were people who look like me and like, wow, okay, 
And in a, and as glorious and as amazing and as crazy as that was to encounter and it's informed my life in really important ways that I'm not even done figuring out yet, there was a part of me that really liked it the other way. Because I was equally your cousin as I was Adam Paul Yakitis, who I now am friends with on Facebook. <laughs> right? So, so, there was a way that, that this was true. That's we're, we're human. So we all share DNA. We're all made up of the same stardust. We're all eating the same planet's food and we're all, we're, right, it's all, we're all connected and we're all part of the unfolding of the only one, capital O. But Torah wants to be very sure and very clear that we understand that. That when we look at Darfur, that when we look at Syria, <clears throat> Oh, they're Syrian. Traditionally, they are our enemies. So what, we're not supposed to feel compassion for those children? They're your children. When we look at another race, when we look at another culture, when we look at another age group, when we look at a time in the future, that the planet that we're giving over to generations after us, you're giving it to your offspring. Whether you birth them or not, whether they live on your continent or not, they're all your offspring because we all go back to Adam and Chava. We are all family. And every time we act against that, we act against the order of the universe. And what is one of the first stories that we get in this Parsha? What's one of the first things that happens? There's a little nuclear family, Adam and Chava, and their two children, Cain and Abel. And what is the first thing that happens? They fight. <laughs> Not only do they fight. So what, what happens? One is gets a favorable response from the authority in our story. One does not. And the one who does not does what? Kills the other one. At the very beginning of the story. Because it's fundamentally our reaction is I don't get what I want. You got what I wanted. Therefore, I hurt you. <laughs> so it's, it's there. It's right there. It's not that it's not normal, natural, part of the way things are constructed. However, the child after that is about really understanding that when you do that, you have acted against your own being. We can't separate them, says Torah. What is what, after the sin in the garden, what is the big question the divine responds with? God doesn't say, okay, now you're in trouble. As soon as Adam does something, Chava does something that indicates they have done something wrong, what is the divine response? Uh, what's the question that that's an answer to? Uh, where are you? Ayeka. Where are you? When Cain kills Hevel, does the divine say, uh-oh, now you're in trouble? No. God responds with a question. What is the question? Where is your brother? Our own beloved Rabbi Avi Winokur. So one for every two or three people. 
says we can't read one question without reading it in light of the other question. Diane? I was going to say, to me, I look at it that pain and anger exists within every one of us. Of course. Of course. Of course. She's saying that she reads it as Cain and Abel exist in every one of us. Of course. This is written by Cain and Abel. This is written by human beings who had absolutely awareness that we have both within us. The idea is we're supposed to live into the Seth. We're supposed to live into the synthesis of these two. So look at Rabbi Winokur's piece. Where are you, God asks Adam, when he and Eve hide from God after eating the forbidden fruit? Where is your brother, God asks Cain, after Cain has slain his brother, Abel, in an apparent fit of jealousy? Odd questions. After all, according to many traditional understandings, God already knows the answers. He is, after all, omniscient. Then why does God ask? This is a huge rabbinic question. If God knows everything, why is God calling to Adam Ayeka? What, God doesn't know where Adam is? Because God wants Adam to know himself. What if, for Adam to turn the life back from himself and know what it is he done. So how does Ayeka, where are you, get at what have you done? Because it makes him account when he says, where is your brother? Ah, that's later. We're talking about Adam. Ayeka, where are you? Ethically, where are you? Ethically, where are you? Where's your brother? How is that addressing what's happened? What happened to your brother? <laughs> Where's your brother? I don't see your brother. God knows where we don't. God knows where Abel is. But Cain has to think about has it. Has to think about it. Where is he? He's not. He, right, I've caused him not to be here. This is the first time it's happened in the universe. And what does that mean? Who hears, you know, remembers the first experience of losing someone to death that you were close to? It's the first time it sinks in. Where are they? You know things die. You know that. But until you lose someone close to you, you don't get the profundity of, wait a minute, where are they? It's facing the really hard truth. God using the Socratic method? God using the Socratic method. Before Socrates. So drop down to the second to last paragraph on the first page. These are the words of Rabbi Winokur. Where am I? This is the foundational question of my existence. Have I been faithful to God's image in which I have been made? Do I face up to who I am and who I have become? Or, like Adam, do I hide? Do I make excuses? So one of the things Rabbi Winokur is saying, our beloved Avi is saying, is this question is also addressed to every single one of us 
all the time. Ayeka. Where are you? Why does God have to ask where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where Adam is. It's because Adam is hiding. Because what? Adam thinks that if I hide, God won't know where I am? Of course not. Presumably. From himself. Adam hides from himself. What part of himself, Rabbi Winokur suggests? Conscience and choice. Conscience and choice that is connected to divinity. Adam is in hiding from the divine in which, in whose image he has been created. He's hiding from the divine part of himself because he has acted against the divine within himself. We all hide because we all act against divinity within ourselves. Have I been faithful to God's image in which I have been made? Do I face up to who I am and I have become? That is what we are invited to do at the Yamim Noraim. That is what we're called into doing in the wake of Yom Kippur, is to just face up to it. Ayeka, where are you? It is at this point in the self-inquiry with help from contemporary Bible scholar Michael Fishbane and others that God's second question, where is Abel your brother, must be considered. In his text and texture, close readings of selected biblical texts, Fishbane notes the richly resonant echoing of the Adam and Eve narrative within the Cain and Abel narrative. Right? How do we see those two together? When we look at Adam and Chava, it says, and they knew they were naked. And of Cain and Abel, we're told, then the man knew his wife. Yes, Eve, which happens after Cain and Abel. So this idea of knowledge, yada, knowing, being something incredibly intimate. Adam and Eve, the woman's desire will be towards her husband, but he will dominate you. Cain and Abel, sin's desire will be towards you, but you can dominate it. So meaning there's so many parallel phrases in these two stories. Fishbane comments, drop down. The parallelism of the texts is thoroughgoing. There is temptation, desire, crime, punishment, and exile east of Eden. In this context of densely interwoven narratives, the questions, where are you? And where is Abel, your brother, fairly shout at us to be read in each other's light? Here, God's two questions as one. Oh, here God's two questions as one. And the meaning is that we are nowhere if our deepest questions are primarily about ourselves, our own well-being, our souls, and the meaning of our lives. We are only somewhere if questions about how our brothers and sisters are living agitate us as much as questions about our own soul. Do our brothers and sisters have affordable health care? Is there heat adequate in the winter? You're going to have to stretch your imagination to get in touch with that one in this 100-degree heat. Are there wages sufficient to support a family? Go to the end of the next paragraph. A person should be more concerned with spiritual than material matters, quoting Rabbi Israel Salinter, but another person's material welfare is our spiritual concern. 
we say, oh, who cares about this earthly realm? What we really need to be focused on, right? Okay, that's lovely. That's a beautiful thought. <laughs> that's our spiritual matters should be the most important thing to us. Absolutely. How we develop spiritually, what we're meditating on, what we're thinking about, how we're cultivating grace and compassion and patience and goodness and love and forgiveness, that absolutely should be more important to us than material things. Someone else's material lack, their material needs, is our spiritual matter. That is what Rabbi Avi Winokur so beautifully pointing out that Rabbi Israel Salenter says, that that these two questions are related. Ayeka, where are you in your moral, ethical development? Where we are is measured by the next question. Where is Abel, your brother? How's it going with him? And of course, we know the answer, at least in our story to that question. It's not going so well with Abel. And Cain knows that. So the question really is, how can you not, if you're Ayeka, if you are dealing with your ethical, emotional development truly and at all, you, it is directly tied, says Rabbi Winnegar, to the question, where's your brother? Does your sister have to choose between medicine for her child and food for her child? You can't read Ayeka. You can't answer the question Ayeka without first addressing the question, how's it going with your brothers and sisters? And really important teaching for America, west side of LA, 2015. Right? We who are privileged, of privileged race, of privileged class, some of us of privileged gender, <laughs> all of us. Not all of us. All of us are privileges. <laughs> Privilege as denoted by how society sees it. Um, priv- you know, so that we, we who are people of privilege, do, do we really take seriously how is it going with your brothers and sisters in light of the fact that we all descend from Adam and Chava? Some of you have the Devar Tzedek. What is Cain's response to the question? Am I my brother's cousin? <laughs> when God says, where's your brother Abel? Cain's response is another question. You're going to start with, did you going to start with me with a question? No problem. It's very Jewish. I'm going to answer your question with a question. Right, so where's, how's it going with your brother Abel? Where's your brother Abel? Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? What is the implication there? Responsibility. I don't have responsibility for Abel. Who does? You do. do. You're asking me Mm -hmm. about how's it going with Abel? (laughs) Am I his keeper? You made all this. Right? So too often, that's the response we hear. How's it going with your brothers and sisters in other parts of the city, in other parts of the planet? How's it going with them? And too often the question is, what does that have to do? That's not my responsibility. Okay, we're sisters, but uh, that's not my responsibility. God knows. God did this. God has willed it that some people are rich and some people are poor. This is the temptation, isn't it? 
It's destiny. It's divine will. It's somehow my birthright, right? Like this is the temptation is to go where Cain goes. Am I my brother's keeper? Why is it my responsibility? What we're hearing today is it's my hard work. Oh, right. It enables me to be so fortunate. I worked hard. If they would just get a job. Those other people are lazy. They're lazy. Living off the system. That is the temptation. Because doesn't that make us feel a lot better about what we have? When it's because we earned it and they're lazy? Boy, that makes me sleep better. And this is, of course, the danger that we get warned about all the time. Lest you think it's the work of your hands that gave you everything you have. It's all mine, says the divine. So go to the second part of your Devarsetic, the second page. Bringing us back to chapter 5. This section of the Torah, the recitation of the generations of Adam thus challenges us to allow God's question to Cain, where is Abel your brother, to reverberate throughout the millennia. It demands that we pose this question with the awareness that in the eyes of Bereshi, all humanity is descended from one family. It compels us to pay attention to the words of the question itself, to recognize it is not only a query about Abel's whereabouts, but also an insistence that he is our brother. As common descendants of Adam, we are not free to shed our brotherhood with Abel. We are simply not at liberty to allow the gulfs created by national, cultural, linguistic, religious, or racial differences to obscure our responsibility to those who are hurt or violated. We must step up to this haunting question whenever it is asked and answer it resolutely. I am my brother's keeper. This year, as we move into a new cycle of Torah reading, may we commit ourselves to responsibility, whatever that calls from us, and may we have the commitment to the time, energy, and creativity it takes to figure out what our responsibility to one another is, and I mean one another as broadly as possible. I was going through, uh, as I was preparing for today, I have a folder on each Torah portion. And I was stuck on where I was going to go today with this. Totally stuck. And so in flipping through all of my commentaries, I noticed I had scribbled quickly on the back of one of them. And usually when I scribble this quickly, it means there are thoughts going really fast or there's something I don't want to forget and I have to get it down. It's already fading. So I start reading and I realize... I had been in the car with Eliana, and she was little. And I must have had this folder out, and, and I grabbed the nearest piece of paper and started writing. And the first one is that she says, you never buckle the bottom anymore of my car seat, and it makes me sad. What, do you want me to fly out the window? Right, so a criticism, of course, of my parenting. Um, but I, and then, I, because we were in this Parsha, we were in Bereshi, I must have asked her, because it says, favorite things God created. Right? So I must have asked her, we're talking about creation. What, are, what do you think, what are your favorite things that God created? And her answer, she must have been, what, four? Because you're still, still getting strapped into a car seat. Her answer was spirit and space. <laughs> they get it. 
they get it. And it is our job to preserve a way of being in the world, to preserve the world, to preserve who humanity becomes so that we protect this capacity of understanding spirit and space as the most precious things you can create. And the last one that was here on the paper was she blows kisses and says, I love you, Mama. And I said, I love you too. And she said, no, I was talking to God. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.